Well, one of, one of our uh, uh, elders a while back suggested that I preach through the letter of Hebrews. There were a lot of things that excited me about working through this letter. Uh, the biggest one was that I knew that Hebrews uh, centers on the person of Jesus Christ, the one that we just exalted, and the supremacy of Jesus over all things. And I knew at that time that that's something our church needs to hear. It's something that I need to hear. It's something that every church needs to keep hearing about. Christianity, after all, is about Christ. We are, by definition, Christ followers. But we often forget that, especially sometimes when we just get into the routine of doing life. We sometimes forget to align ourselves around Jesus, maybe not uh, intentionally, I don't think we do that on purpose, but maybe sometimes functionally we neglect the person of Christ and how he's connected to us. We, we neglect to apply our Christianity. We neglect to apply our allegiance to Christ, to our present circumstances. In fact, we often don't even know how to do that. Jesus sometimes can, can just sort of become a, a concept or, or a fact that we believe in, but not a person with whom we are united and around whom our, our lives are centered. And so Hebrews reminds us of who Jesus is and what it is about him that makes him worthy of our attention and of our, ultimately, worthy of our faith and our belief. That's what excited me about Hebrews. But I have to admit that there was a part of me that was less than excited to preach through Hebrews. And one of the things that made me less than excited was that this was written to people that came out of Judaism. And so it's got all these connections to that system. Most, if not all of us, don't have that same background. And so I thought that it was going to be hard to apply these truths to us and to our church. But I'm happy to say that, being almost halfway through now, that I was wrong. This has turned out to be very relevant. And I should have known better because it's God, God's Word and God's Word is always relevant. But the other part that I admit that I wasn't excited about is the passage that we're at today. I knew that when we started going through Hebrews, I would eventually have to deal with Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 8. This is a bit of a controversial passage. It, it gets used as a way to prove a certain theological system, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. But there are verses that have been interpreted in different ways, and it's not the easiest passage to try to figure out, especially when you pull it out just on its own. But every passage has a context. And I was a bit surprised to find that when we do come to this passage, when I came to this passage now, in the flow of this letter, it really just fits right, nicely right into the point that the author has been trying to make in this letter. There are, there are still a few things that we need to figure out, but it's definitely not as daunting as I thought it might be. These verses are part of a section, a bit of a side note in this sermon here that eventually turns into this letter, where the author talks about how the people in this community haven't reached a point where they're ready to hear more about how Jesus fills out the picture of the Old Testament scriptures that they held so dear. He wanted to tell them how Jesus meets and how Jesus fulfills and how Jesus far surpasses the function of the high priest in their system. That's the point where he was at when he got chapter 5. But he has to stop at chapter 5, verse, after chapter 5, verse 10, and 
before verse 11, because as he puts it, he says, you have become dull of hearing. They should have been ready to receive all this, this stuff about the priesthood, but they somehow had become lazy. They didn't even know how to discern right from wrong and good from evil, never mind being able to figure out how Jesus makes a better high priest than, than a high priest after the line of Aaron. He's basically telling them that they should be ashamed because of their immaturity. He says they should be eating solid food, and yet they're still drinking milk. And they only have themselves to blame. And so, when we get to chapter 6, verse 1, he tries to, to rally them together, and he says, come on, let's, let's leave all this basic stuff about the meaning of Christianity behind. Let's, let's move on. You should be making progress. You should be ready to receive some of the deeper stuff. Let's press on to maturity. But in verse 3, he sets us up for what's coming by saying, this we will do. We will press on to maturity if God permits. Our growth and our progression is ultimately dependent upon God. But it looks like there will be some who are going to lag behind. They, they won't come along. God won't permit them to come along. They'll, they'll stay in a place of unbelief and pride. They'll stay in a place of being dull of hearing. That's sort of a hard thing to hear, that God won't permit them to keep going. But he, he talks like that to the Pharisees. When, during his, Jesus talks like that to the Pharisees during his ministry, that they will not believe. They will hear but not believe. There are actually some people who, if they stay in that place, will fall away. If they fail to respond to God, and if they persistently fail to grow, God will not permit them to go on. That's kind of a scary proposition, isn't it? But it's for those people who have every opportunity, yet refuse to believe. They've been blessed by being able to hear the message very clearly. They've understood the message. They know what they need to do in response, yet they don't respond in saving faith. They, they, they keep a distance from the gospel. And so verses 4 and following shows up in that context. The writer is going to go from basically shaming them for being dull of hearing, you know, sort of giving them a bit of a reprimand there, to giving a warning of what will happen if people stay in that condition. And then in verses 9 to 12, he's going to end this little uh, interlude here with an encouragement, with an affirmation. He doesn't want to leave them scared that they might not be saved. That's not his intention at all in this letter. And so he ends by affirming the fact that there is a way to have a full assurance of hope. And, and Stuart is going to talk about that next week. So I'm going to read here from verses 1 to 12, just so that we sort of get the whole context. But we're going to look specifically at verses 4 to 8 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, just open to Hebrews chapter 6. It says there, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from old dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Those are basically, or just things that are basic to um, what Jewish Christians would have understood. Except the, their problem is that they didn't connect them to Jesus Christ. Verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, 
and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as, still, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. So we see here that there's a certain kind of case that the writer brings to the forefront. And it's a different kind of case from the people he starts talking about in verse 9. There he says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, we feel sure of better things. And so whoever he's talking about in verses 4 to 8 is different than the people that he's going to get to in verse 9. This is one of those places where it's important to know your grammar. It's important to pay attention here to personal pronouns. In chapter 5, you'll see there that he's talking directly to his readers. Uh, down in verse 11 and following, he says, you ought to be teachers. You need milk. He's talking directly to them. And then at the beginning of chapter 6, he includes himself too. He starts talking about us and, and we. But in verse 4, he seems to bring in a different group. He says, now, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and then he turns his attention back on them in verse 9, in your case. So there's one case, and then there's a different case of people that he's talking to. So one of the things that's hard to figure out in this passage is who he's talking about in verses 4 to 8, when he says those. Is he bringing up a, a hypothetical group? Is he talking to a mix of people in the congregation there where he dresses one group and then he dresses another group? Is he talking about Christians? Or is he talking about people that profess to be Christians but weren't really? Well, the answer is that we're not really sure. It'd be nice if he just came out and said who it was, but he doesn't. And, and, and God saw fit to leave it that way. Now, there are actually good reasons to believe all of those things. And after studying them a little bit this week, I, I'm not even sure where I land on it. But what I do know is that this is a real warning. This is not something that he just sort of throws out there as something that could happen but won't. It's something that could really happen. It's a warning of something that happens to people who don't press on to maturity in their Christianity. People who keep drinking milk and, and who prove it by purposely staying at an elementary level in their growth. He's saying that those kinds of people are in real danger here. So this is really a sobering passage of Scripture. In some ways, and especially to those who find themselves in this situation, it's actually a scary passage of Scripture. But if they would just bend their ears to listen and pay attention, they can still have the full assurance of hope that he talks, to, talks about there in verse 11. might be that this applies to some of you that are here today. 
you've been identified there at the end of chapter 5, and you need to pay attention to the warning here in chapter 6, and then, and, and then instead of staying in a certain place, to press on to maturity so that you can avoid the consequence that's being described here. And so before we go on to the consequence there at the beginning of verse 4 and at the end of verse 6, look at the description of the people he describes. He describes them here in five ways. They've once been enlightened, they've tasted of the heavenly gift, they've shared in the Holy Spirit, they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Those are four descriptions. But then there's a fifth, and that is that they have also fallen away. That also belongs in that list of descriptors there. But if you look at the first four, without even speculating on what kinds of people this is talking about, we can say for sure that these people have received amazing blessings. They're a privileged people. God has permitted them, in the language of verse 3, verse 4, to be enlightened and to taste a gift from heaven. Could be talking about Jesus there, could be talking about the Holy Spirit, we're not sure which gift could be talking about salvation in general and to share in the Holy Spirit, and to taste of the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. They've had access to all those blessings and privileges. But remember, with great blessings come great responsibilities. It would be a terrible thing to waste those privileges. You see this in different disciplines. You see this in sports. Most athletes, we could generally say, have to work hard for everything that they get. But every so often, there are athletes that come along that have been blessed with a special dose of talent and ability. In hockey these days, we hear the term a generational player. Players with great natural talent who hockey teams acquire that have great luck. But I want to talk about that. But those players usually still have to add hard work to their natural talent in order to make it and to become that generational player. But you also hear of athletes who have great talent and yet for one reason or another they never make it. They've wasted their blessings, they haven't applied themselves, haven't worked hard, or they felt entitled and it was their attitude that held them back. You can also see this in music or or in artistic skill, or in other disciplines. People have been given amazing abilities. They can maybe just pick up an instrument, any instrument, and play beautifully. Or they can pick up a pencil and just start doodling, and it turns into something amazing and beautiful. But they've never translated those blessings into a financial benefit, which is sort of the marker of success in our world. We could say that their natural talent never took them anywhere. But here in Hebrews 6, we read of these great spiritual blessings, spiritual privileges that have been experienced. They've, as the girls sung, they've seen the light. They've received light. They've tasted God's word and power. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've they've received um, everything that they've needed to reach great heights of spirituality as children of God and as followers of Jesus. But the warning here is that even though people can be recipients of these great blessings, they can still waste it. They can still come to the place where their privileges and blessings, just like those 
artists don't take them anywhere. They don't take them to the place where they're united with Christ through repentance and faith and where they've experienced the, as verse, chapter 5, verse 9 calls it, the eternal salvation. And so God, in his grace and in his kindness, is firing out here a warning signal. He's telling us to pay attention so that we don't miss the eternal blessings, so that we persevere in our faith. And we show ourselves to be persevering and continuing in our faith by by growing in our faith and by pressing on to maturity. Yet there's this daunting fifth description of falling away. The same group that's described as receiving those great blessings are also described as falling away. I think the translation should just be and fall away or and have fallen away. There's really, and the ESV has an if there. There's no if in the original. But if we just string all these things together, it should make us wonder, how could that happen? How can you just go from up there where you got all these great blessings that you're receiving and end up down here? Where you've fallen away. But before I answer that, let me just address one of the questions that always pops up here. And that's the question of, who are these people that are described? And more precisely, what is their spiritual condition? This is where some people would say that it's it's possible for Christians to be genuinely saved and then fall away. They would say, see, look at this. There's no such thing as once saved, always saved. This is their go-to text. But there are a couple of ways that I want, would want to just push back a little bit gently. First, there are an overwhelming number of other passages in the Bible that point to the fact that when those, uh, those who God truly saves, he also keeps. For instance, John 6.37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Or just two verses later in chapter 6, verse 39 of John, the Gospel of John, I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. In other words, since it is God who saves them by his power, then who are we to say, as humans, as not God, who are we to say that people can undo what God has done? Later, Jesus says in chapter 10 of John, no one will snatch my sheep out of my father's hand. That's Jesus talking there. We should pay attention to him. But there are many more passages that show that those God saves, he also keeps. And I won't read them all. They're listed in your sermon notes there. You can look those up. The other thing I would want to bring up to those who believe that the truly saved can lose their salvation is that if you were to take take that belief from this passage, you would also have to believe that once they walk away from their salvation, there would be no hope left. Right? It would be impossible for them to be saved. That, frankly, should be frightening. You wouldn't have to pray for them anymore. You wouldn't have to share the gospel with them anymore. How awful would that be? S. Lewis Johnson shared the story of talking to a person who believed that the truly saved 
could lose their salvation. And he was arguing back and forth for a little while, and he finally said, if they fall away, and they were talking about this passage, he says, if they fall away, then my doctrine, which is once saved, always saved, is according to your teaching, once lost, always lost. That's a frightening prospect, isn't it? Well, I think a better way of seeing this passage is to see it for what it is, as a warning. I take this to be a preacher making a plea to his congregation to hold fast to Christ, to keep going. It's the same thing he's been doing right through this letter. He's been holding up Jesus, and every once, every once in a while he stops uh, to tell us who Christ is and how great he is, how much he's greater than, than everything that they've thought was great about the Jewish system. Every once in a while he stops to say, because I'm holding up Jesus, you need to hold on to Jesus. I'll hold up Jesus is greater and greater, and you hold on to Jesus. I know you're wavering, and that's what this congregation was, I believe. I know you're tempted to lose hope. They had tons of persecution that was happening. I know you're thinking of giving up, but just look to Jesus and hold on to him. He'll, he'll help you make it through, but you won't be able to make it without Jesus. And so this shepherd here is looking at his congregation, a congregation that's just like any other congregation. There are some in the congregation that are true believers. There are some uh, true believers who are struggling with their faith. There are others in the congregation who think that they are believers and might even profess to be Christians. There are some that aren't Christians. They would say they aren't. That, that's the makeup of every congregation. And, and preachers can't really know who's in what category. Now, the only difference here in Hebrews is that this congregation has a Jewish background. And because they have a Jewish background, they've been exposed to all these many blessings that came with being God's chosen people. They've got all the promises. They've got the covenants. They have all the pointers that should be directing them to Jesus. But they've missed them. And they've missed them because they've become dull of hearing, a certain group of them, part of them. And if they miss the truth about Jesus there's no other hope of salvation. Because it doesn't get any better than Jesus. If they reject Jesus, the Savior of the world, if they reject him, then what's left? What else can we give them? That's what this warning is all about. And so the Hebrew people, in general, have received all these blessings from God. They're, they're all listed right there. They've been enlightened. They've tasted the gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age, of, age to come. Wow, you know, every opportunity has been presented to them by God to be able to embrace Christ. But he adds, then, that they've fallen away. You know, the great blessing for them, as opposed to the Old Testament people of God, is that they, they're now on the other side of Jesus. Jesus has come, he's lived, he's died, he's risen, he's ascended. And now he's coming and saying, please don't reject Jesus. You can see him more clearly than your ancestors have. He's already come and he's done his work. So to do that, to reject Christ now is tragic. So look at the consequence there. It's, it's there at the beginning of verse 4. Then he lists all the blessings there and then in the middle of verse 6. He says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have 
received all those blessings that are listed, and, verse 6, to have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance. It's just like Jesus being, being set right in front of their eyes. And they look right at him. And then they just do a detour and go right by him. The warning is, when someone does that, what's left? There's nothing better than Jesus to offer them. It's impossible for them to be renewed to repentance, therefore. There's no clearer presentation of the gospel than Jesus himself. If you miss Jesus, you miss everything. So if you don't move on to maturity, you willfully pass right by Jesus. And if you don't grab onto Jesus for your life, you are rejecting Christ. It says there at the end of verse 6 that those who reject Jesus are no different than, than those Jews who are yelling, crucify him, crucify him. They are, in effect, saying that their Hebrew forerunners in Jerusalem were justified in crucifying Jesus and holding him up to contempt. They're rejecting God's greatest blessing and God's greatest provision. The warning is that people who don't press on to maturity are in danger of missing God's greatest and most precious gift, the gift of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as pastors, we're always looking for ways to illustrate the truths in the Bible. But here, in verses 7 to 8, it's been done for us. Look at verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. For this original audience, this illustration would have brought them right back into their Bibles, into our Old Testament, to pictures of the promised land where God uh, took care of the land and, and watered the land. Read about that in Deuteronomy 11 and 28. But it also would have brought up images from Deuteronomy 29 where God curses the land and eventually burns the land. But the illustration doesn't just help that original audience out. It also helps us out. Our, our land, just yesterday, right, was blessed with lots of moisture. All day. <laughs> now, it wasn't quite in the form of rain, <laughs> but it was moisture nonetheless. And, if you talk to some of the people that work the land, they would say that this was a blessing from God. Yeah, it might have delayed their seeding a little bit, but it was still moisture. God has watered the land well. But the proof will be in what the land produces. The same land can produce a useful crop or it can produce thorns and thistles. We have a field that borders our property. And in that field, there are some uh, low areas that right now are, or right now they're filled with snow, but just last week they were filled with water. And when the farmers are seeding there, they can't get the seed in there because it's still too wet. Well, when it finally does dry out, you can, it just stands out because all it produces is weeds, thorns and thistles, unless they spray something in there beforehand. But usually, if it's left uncared for or anything that nothing's done with it, it just produces thorns and thistles, just weeds. The same plot of land has both useful crops and worthless thistles. Well, the illustration is that the land represents people. 
You write that down. Land equals people. All these people in the congregation there. And the rain represents the blessings from God, those ones that were listed there in verses 4 and 5. They've, they've all had God's blessings fall on them. All of it should produce a good crop, yet some doesn't. The crop equals faith, the kind of faith that perseveres, the kind of faith that moves on to maturity just like a good crop. But when it doesn't respond to the blessings, it's worthless. It's just destined to be cursed and burned. Listen, friends, you live on the other side of the cross as well. You have been blessed by God with the Holy Spirit and with the goodness of his word and with the power of the cross and with the power of of the resurrection. That's what I think the power of the age to come means there. You've been blessed with the church. You've been blessed with the gospel. You've been blessed with the proclamation of the word. You have access to the Bible in your language, in the translation of your choice, in, in the format of your choice. Book, tablet, audio, video. You have access to the proclamation of the word and to the gospel of Jesus Christ in your church every Lord's Day. And if you don't get there, you've got access to it in podcasts or in conferences or on the radio or on the internet or on your television. What great blessings we have in our day and age. We have unparalleled access to the gospel of Jesus Christ here in our country. And yet people still resist him. Or they try to redefine Jesus to to fit into their sinful life rather than to take him for who he is and to allow his word to transform them and to change them. So whether you are a professing Christian or if you're here today and you know you're not a Christian, I would ask you to consider again Jesus. If you profess to be a Christian, are you pressing on in your faith? Are you holding up Christ and are you holding on to Christ? Are you regularly repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ alone? Don't ever stop doing that. That's the way to grow in faith and to persevere in faith. Just recognize that you need Christ from day to day. You need his perfection. You need his righteousness. If you're not doing that, ask yourself if you have ever truly repented in the first place. And if not, repent and believe and keep believing and repenting. And if you're not a Christian, I just encourage you to give up on your sin, to turn away from your sin, to turn away from your self-reliance to try to please God. Turn away from your sins and hide yourself in the righteous life of Jesus Christ in full reliance on him alone. And then you too will be able to enjoy and to revel in these great blessings from God. Let's bow together in prayer.